Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. Kyle's got the day off today because, of course, we have an interview. So uh, before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening as usual. I uh, ask you to subscribe to the podcast or follow it wherever uh, platform you're doing that. Whatever their terminology is, we appreciate that so you can know when a new podcast comes out. Also, a uh, five-star rating goes a long way. Thank you all so much for that and a nice review. Also appreciated. Uh, of course, we're also an ad-free podcast, so if you want to support the show with a couple bucks, you can do so at empiricalcycling.com slash donate. But of course, uh, if you want to become an empirical cycling athlete, you can reach out to us, empiricalcycling at gmail.com. That is a, uh, a more expensive Patreon, I would say, but uh, it definitely supports the show. Thank you all so much for your recent coaching inquiries. And also for consultations, we are available. Our time is your time. We will answer your questions. We can look at your files, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Coaches, athletes, uh, teams. We are happy to uh, make our time available for you. Uh, we've got some show notes up on the website. We have a couple links from today's show. And uh, of course, up on the Instagram, we asked a couple questions for our guest, and uh, he answered them very graciously and in very excellent detail, as he is wont to do. So on today's episode, we of course have Michael Erickson of That Triathlon Show and Scientific Triathlon. And he's a podcaster who I've listened to for a long time, of course, uh, as have many of uh you know, you all listening to me now. And he is a uh, consummate podcaster. He's an excellent interviewer. He does a lot of research. He puts a lot of thought into what he does. And I think he is definitely one of the best out there. And, um, you know, he, I've been on his show twice now, and I thought it was time to turn the tables on him. And he came on the show. Uh, and I think we had a really, really great chat. I was so happy about the conversation we had. And um, uh, I think he was happy about it, too. Uh, he asked me to uh, share the audio. So this may appear on his channel as well. So um, I've got all the scientific triathlon uh, media links up to their website and all that kind of stuff in the show notes at empiricalcycling.com. So if you want to check that out, please do. I highly encourage you to listen to that podcast as well, in addition to, of course, this one. So um, thanks everybody for, uh, everything. Thanks for listening. And, uh, without further ado, let's get started with this conversation. Cause it's a really good one. See you on the other side. Thinking about old training plans. Uh, cause I had just looked up one of my old ones. And it was the first time I had ever put like one of my long FTP tests into a training plan. Um, and I was, uh, I was cringing while reading it and I was like, Oh God. Oh, I did that. Oh God. I told people to do that. Oh God. Um, so when you go back and look at your old plans, do you feel the same way? And also, do you think when you're looking at those plans, I understand why I did that. And now I understand why it's wrong. Yeah, probably both of those. Uh, I mean, it, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that the, the principles of training haven't really changed, but it's more like there are so many, kind of nuances that you understand better now than you did then. And and I think, I guess, almost effectiveness uh, tricks. Like, I, th I think that the training is much more effective the way I prescribe it now than it was five years ago. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think you don't even have to go back five years. You have to go back one year, and, and you you already start to feel a little bit that <laughs> oh, I wouldn't do this uh, like that. And yeah, I think I think it's easy as a coach uh, to be very self-critical, and uh, I certainly am. And, and yeah, it's it's difficult sometimes. But um, 
yeah, I, I think it's also a good uh, a good thing. It kind of um, to to remember just how far, yeah, how how much how hard you worked to improve on things and and how far you've come. Because there, it's also you see it kind of in the industry that not everybody works hard to improve their understanding. Like some people just do the same thing year in year out. So so I think there's uh, there's two sides to that coin. Do you think that? Um being self-critical is might be one of the most important parts of coaching. Yeah, I I I would say so. I I think so because it's I think it's a profession and a a task that that is going to be bound to be influenced by a lot of potential biases. And and I think that's that's one of the I think critical thinking. That's one a thing that I'm very passionate about in general and uh and I think it's something that should be Taught in taught in school uh, and um, especially these days, um, but yeah, even uh, when I went to school, like I, I wish we had had some of that. But I, th- I think being able to understand different different. Sorry, I'm going to turn off these notifications that are <laughs> coming through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I think I think that having um, having the understanding of different biases that might occur, you're never going to be able to completely put them aside. But at least understanding them, uh, that's going to to make you a better a, a better coach that's going and and being able to question your own reasoning that's that's going to to make you a better coach so i think being self critical it kind of goes hand in hand with those other attributes that i think are are really important well cuz you went to school for engineering right and so like in engineering um i know engineering is not exactly the same as you know being trained as a proper research scientist but um you learn the scientific method uh, and I know in engineering, like there's an answer because you have to have a product or, or you have to have something at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, I think in the scientific method, that should be self-doubt enough in itself because you're always trying to figure out, oh, what what could have confounded my research result? Um, well, maybe not enough people think of that kind of stuff. And so there's still that human element, you know? Um, and so I think when it comes to self-doubt as coaches, um, you know, cause I'm, I'm sure you're a lot like me in a way, but I, I have heard a lot of stories about people who, you know, not, not to name names as we never do here, but who think they're the shit because their athlete won this, that, or the other thing. And they're like, yeah, now I, everything I do is awesome. Just, you know, my plans are great. I know everything. Um, I, I'm the best coach in the world. Uh, but you know, I think people like you and me, even when somebody wins something, we go, "What could we have done better?" Yeah, no, I think I think you have to uh, you have to have that mindset of of what what can you do better because otherwise you just you you won't improve and somebody else will improve and then then you're done. So yeah, I think it's it's pretty self evident. I mean, it's not self evident because uh, you do see a lot of circulation, I guess, of um, you know the the same jobs going to the same circle of coaches they just seem to flip countries every now and then in in, in for example in, in triathlon in the in the federation world uh but um, um but yeah i think i think by and large uh, i completely agree with that uh is that one of the reasons you started your podcast so that way you had an excuse to interview people all the time and and learn oh 100 percent. yeah that was the main that was the main reason <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah, I was just fascinated by um, learning, but yeah, I've, I've I found that you know there's there's just so much 
a nuance that you can't uh, you can't get from reading somebody's book or watching somebody's video and also reading somebody's research paper like you uh, yeah the, the best i i still think I, I do all of those things of course but the the way that i learn the most is by having a conversation with somebody um i think one of the most fascinating things to me about you and your podcast is what effect does having you know hundreds or maybe are you up to a thousand yet? Um, no, but maybe 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 over five hundred because I have a lot of unnumbered episodes, the Q and As, and so right. on. So yeah, probably over five hundred. So when you have done that many episodes and you've um, interviewed that many people, how often do you get something like oh I've got to jump onto this thing? Like how do you how do you sort out how many trends or new things that you're going to follow? How many things do you go, I got to wait and see? And how many things do you later think, I should have jumped on that right when it happened? Yeah, I kind of have a rule for myself that I should never jump on uh, on anything until I let at least a month pass from talking to somebody. And if, if a month later I still think, oh, that's so exciting, I need to jump on it, then then I at least I have given it some uh, some time, uh, some time has passed, and I can give it. I have given it some more thought, and then that's uh, that's one, I guess, uh, safeguard in place for you know just jumping on some bandwagon. But but to be honest, most often it's uh, it's not that any one person makes me change my ways or anything like that. It's more about uh, at at this point, especially you know, the principles of training are kind of um, not really changing i mean i'm sure we're pretty much aligned on them and it's more about the nuances and you always try to kind of uh look at them from different perspectives and in different contexts different uh, athlete profiles perhaps and 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 you can can tweak things here and there and but I, I find that that comes organically over time and it's probably influenced by hearing a couple of people say that oh i do this with that type of athlete or i do that with this type of athlete and so on but it's it's not so much that i I hear this one thing that somebody says and I'm like, aha, I'm going to use it. It's just uh, the idea is probably uh, put into my brain a little bit and then it uh, it simmers there for a while and then and then somehow I, I remember it and, and, and try it out and realizing that, yeah, a couple of people have mentioned this, maybe maybe it might work. So so it's it happens more organically over time most of the time, I would say. Yeah. Do you have any conversations with, uh, with either self-coach people or other coaches who read like a handful of papers on one training methodology and they're like, this is the way I will do just this. And it's, this is going to be the secret to unlocking my full potential. Like how many of those conversations do you have? Um, yeah. How many of those? I pr probably more so a couple of years ago, because I feel like at this point, uh, my podcast is so mature that everybody who has been a listener for a reasonable amount of time know that, one coach will have one methodology, another will have another methodology, and they might both have achieved a great success with their athletes. So they, they get, I think everybody's kind of starting to see that, okay, there's not necessarily, there, there is not one right way. There are different uh, ways to skin a cat. And and the same thing with different trends in research. And and, and I think, to be honest, when whenever I have an, an academic on that, uh, that I'm interviewing on a certain topic, be it, for example, fasted training, which was a big trend a while back, and and uh, yeah, at that point, I did have quite quite a lot of emails around that specific topic. But then, uh, more and more research started 
coming out that, well, there are some signaling advantages, but we don't really see it translating into performance. And then on the practical side, practitioners start to see that, oh, actually a lot of these people might uh, have a tendency to end up in a red S situation or even so. So there's, so, so you kind of start to see that it's, it's usually not that beneficial to, you know, jump on, jump on a trend. It's better to wait until, until you get a bit more data and meat on, on the bone, so to say. And, not not to answer your to to answer your question more indirectly. I was actually read a really <laughs> interesting article on uh, the New Yorker yesterday. It was sent to me by my sister. It was about uh, how uh, different biases affect us and about some some experiments that Stanford researchers had done on people with confirmation bias. and And uh, I'll try to look it up and send it to you so you can put it in the show notes because it was absolutely fascinating stuff there about how our brains and our biases work work against us in in these kind of things so so yeah that was that was a really interesting read that i had just yesterday yeah i mean cuz i was i was talking to somebody yesterday uh about the wasson selection task um which is the one where you've got like it's like a um it's like a vowel a consonant a, an even number and an odd number and you're supposed to flip over two cards to show that on the back of every vowel is an even number or something like that. You can rearrange it however you want. And most people flip over like the, the vowel and the consonant or something like that. And what you should do is you flip over one to, um, to either to look at if you can confirm this, but you should also flip over like, um, you know, the opposite one on the other side. Like, so if you're supposed to look at, you know, on the back of every, you know, vowel is an even number over here, you flip over the odd number to see if you can confirm or deny that rule exists. And so I think when it comes to the kind of stuff that, you know, we are exposed to as podcast hosts, um, do you ever wonder has, you know, have I developed a small echo chamber of my own podcast listeners? Cause I think about that all the time. Um, I try to avoid that by mostly having my guests do the talking and especially now, so it was a year ago in July, 2021, when I, when I transitioned from having two episodes per week of which one was a solo episode, usually a Q and a episode. And, uh, it was just mainly hours, work hours related, like, uh, and I just didn't have the, the time to produce two episodes per week. So, and, and the one, as I said, 100% the reason for starting the podcast was to talk to people. So I didn't want to give that one up. So, so I kept the interviews and, and stopped doing the solo episodes for the most part. So, so by doing that, I, I think that it kind of, it should prevent uh, most of that from happening. Of course, there is a, a possibility that I select uh, people that I know will have a specific view on things. And I try to, I try to avoid that by, by having people with many different views as long as I uh, respect their um, their ability to be whatever it is, good coaches or good academics, um, and mostly those are the two types of of people that I tend to interview. So, so I think I, I do my best to mitigate that, to be honest, uh, with with that with an interview based podcast. Well, because I've always really appreciated your interview style, which is you ask a, a good question and then you give that person as much rope as they need to you know either weave a basket or hang themselves, like you, you know you like I, it's such a unique style well it's not it's not unique unique but like you're not like a, a a news anchor trying to you know 
get a statement out of somebody that's like quotable and can make a headline. You're not like, you're not also interviewing a political candidate where you're trying to have like a gotcha question. Um, you know, you ask people fairly like both, I feel like they're questions that are like both specific and broad at the same time. And it's always fascinated me. How do you research your guests and how do you come up with such good questions where people can go just, you know, on for, you know, two to sometimes like 10 minutes? Yeah. Uh, it, well, I, I think the, the first answer to that question is that it comes back to the fact that I, I'm genuinely curious uh, in learning what uh, what my guests have to say about certain topics so so i think that's that's really important like i i want to i i don't have an interview as an excuse to make my own opinion known I, like that's that's not something that i need um but uh, but really it, it is to to hear what what my guest has to say and uh, and then in terms of the research that depends a lot on what type of guest i'm interviewing so mainly for when i interview an, an academic researcher that there's usually a lot of uh, research on my part involved reading several of their papers and uh, maybe even some introductory papers to the the area that they're focused on and and so on so so that can be many hours of work to prepare for that and and of course to come up with the with the questions when, when it's a coach it's completely different it's especially now uh, that i've interviewed so many i i kind of have a routine where I know a certain set of questions that I, I tend to always like to ask, or at least very regularly like to ask. Uh, I do also uh, always like to ask my guests if they have a specific area that they would like to talk to, that they feel like they are uh, experts in, or that they feel would be uh, interesting for the audience. Quite often my guests uh, ha happen to be podcast listeners. I, I never know that beforehand before I contact them, but then they say, <laughs> oh, I listen to your podcast. And and then they might know that, well, one thing that you haven't really discussed in your podcast is this, and, and I have some thoughts on that. So then I'm usually saying, great, let's uh, let's have a chat about that topic. So so it's also a bit of a collaborative process, especially with when when there are other coaches that I'm uh, that I'm interviewing. But But again, there are some questions that I think, uh, especially now I have uh, uh, quite a long, long time of doing these interviews that I feel are usually really good questions. And then, of course, I, I do do my due diligence on the coaches as well to know a little bit about their background as much as I can find out anyway. And, and in some cases, let's say it's a coach that has worked with some very famous or high-level triathletes, then I tend to try to ask about these athletes and their training methods and so on to to get some specifics all, although i also want to be careful about not doing too much about that because we both know that a coach has a certain part to play in an athlete's success but uh, a lot of it is also down to the athlete so we shouldn't <laughs> look too much into what one athlete has done uh, as the, the recipe for success and and secondly i also want to have a certain respect for for the privacy of, of the athlete. So, um, so try to find a balance there. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Cause that makes me think, um, you know, cause I, I'm sure you and I are on the same page about this. Um, cause a lot of the time when it comes to the training of the top level athletes, um, you know, I've, uh, I, I always think about what, uh, Dean Gallitz said to me a long time ago. It's like, just don't screw it up. You know, it's like, like they're this good. You can mess this up because you're steering the ship but um if you if you're fine they're going to be fine 
Um, and so is that something that you've seen kind of hold true or, um, or do you see some coaches can really get that extra, like one or 2% out of people? Yeah, I think some people can, but it also has to be with the right athlete. So, I, I mean, I think, I think a great example of, of that in the last few years in the triathlon world has been the, the Norwegian triathletes. Uh, it's, it's the obvious example. Um, but it's not to say that their methods, I, I, I honestly don't think that their methods would work with, uh, with every triathlete. Like it's not, they might, I'm sure there are athletes that are equally talented as they are, but if you put them in the same environment and, and the same training methods, then that might not work for them. So, and, and it's, I don't know, it's, I, of course the coaches could change the, the training methods potentially to make those other equally talented athletes equally successful, but, um, where was I going with that? <laughs> Lost my train of thought. Um, I, I, I think I think what I'm saying is that it, it's also a question of be of having of having the right coach athlete relationship, not just the right coach or the right athlete. It has to be a match uh, on on both sides, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Um, you know, because I've I've experienced that where you know me and some people we just don't work well together. Like the communication isn't quite there. Uh, you know, they'll write workout comments and I'm just like, I don't understand what this guy's trying to tell me with this sentence. Yeah. Um, and you know, to him, it might be like lingo he uses with his friends or something like that. And I, I don't understand. And I'm, tr and I don't want to be rude also when I try to ask for clarification. And at some point you just realize that you're, you're just button heads and nothing good is going to come up, come of this. And, you know, when you part ways, um, I mean, I, I know some, uh, some newer coaches and especially when I was young and coaching, uh, you know, part of it would be like, oh man, that's, that's like a substantial portion of my income gone, <laughs> but also like there's this relief. Um, and okay, now I can try to find somebody who's going to be a better fit. Like, you know, it, you know, there's a, there's a, it's just business kind of aspect to that kind of thing too. Yeah, I think I definitely yeah, uh, recognize that. I, I completely agree. Like it's at, at this, you know, in the early days, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really horrible because yeah, you don't know how you're going to, going to have food on the table for the next month, but then, <laughs> yeah. uh, but then at some point, uh, hopefully if things go well, then you get to a point where, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a good thing on all parts because you get a chance to have a, an athlete that is a better fit for you. And, and it, it, it weighs on you, even if you don't really think about it, but when, when, when you then part ways and you hopefully get an athlete that is a better fit for you, then then you just start to realize how much that pressure has been weighing on you of having somebody who doesn't really, who you don't really work well together with, because that does happen for everybody, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. I, I notice like when I dread opening up that person's training piece, because a lot of the time it's somebody who's inconsistent. Because um, I think one of the things that's nice about what we do is that, especially in our sports, um, our athletes are intrinsically motivated to a very high degree. And a lot of the time our job is to get them to train less or go less hard. Like, Hey, pull it back on this ride. Cause you know, you've got to be this, that, and the other thing down the road. Um, as opposed to, Hey, you know, texting somebody, did you get your bike today? <laughs> we don't have yeah. to do that a lot of the time, yeah. thankfully. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and for me, uh, that's definitely the the kind of athlete that I that I don't work really well with. When if I have to be the motivator, like that's not something that I'm I'm good at <laughs> at all, or or even like doing very much. So so yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be a good coach for for that for the kind of athlete that needs 
actual motivation. Some athletes just need to have a coach and then that's enough accountability for them to be consistent and then that's fine. But if they if they need additional specific external motivation from the coach, then yeah, that's not something that I enjoy or I'm good at doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and we have a couple coaches and I'm, I'm sure you've got a couple assistant coaches too, where they're way better at that. And I, and when people are, you know, sending in coaching inquiries, like what kind of coaching relationship do you need here? Uh, and based on what they say, uh, you know, it whittles down the choices pretty quickly and easily. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with your podcast, I, I'm sorry, like it's, it's, this is so much fun to, you know, the interviewer is now the guest and I get to ask you questions. Um, when, when you've interviewed so many people and you, uh, cause you are probably one of the people on earth who has the most knowledge about what the most cutting edge stuff is and like the most new research, like you've got probably like, you've got the widest net cast. Um, and so you're probably aware of way more tools than a lot of people, including especially me, because I've got my head down in like three areas of research and that's it. Um, so when you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox to reach for, um, does having such a big selection have any difficulties in itself? Or is it like your core principles of training are pretty well-conceived by this point and you just reach for things when something becomes an issue? Yeah, that, that's a broad question, but largely I would say that you're, uh, that what you said there, the, the latter option is correct, that the, the basic principles are well-conceived and then there are tools that can, uh, that can be helpful. There are, of course, a certain, certain tools that, that's, might be useful for everybody within those basic principles but but a lot of things are things that you kind of reach for in cases when you have we're having issues or maybe you need to look for the one percenters or or something something like that but but it's not useful for the majority of athletes necessarily and and again like i look at this try to look at this from um with some uh critical thinking uh, skills uh, on me and and it's of course difficult and you don't always get it get it right but I, I try to use things myself before as well before uh, imposing anything on on my athlete so trying out things there are a couple of things that I'm trying out at the moment and uh, uh, without I mean so a couple of things that I, I can I can tell that I'm that I'm experimenting with now is uh, aero testing. I'm, I've been experimenting with the Nocio uh, aero sensor, uh, being guided by actually a, a friend of mine who is a, an expert in aerodynamics and a cyclist himself. Uh, and also another is is an app related to uh, readiness, but not just the normal HRV, but things like cognitive fatigue and so on. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to experiment with different things, and and that also gives me kind of that. Uh, that time that I talked about earlier before deciding if um, if I think this is something that I can have as a toolbox to reach for with some or even all of my athletes and and uh, but I think for example with the aero testing thing the sensor is nice but what we've found as well is that if you have a I have access to an outdoor velodrome um, which is basically like just like a um, a, a, a concrete track for cycling I, it's, I mean it's it's 
flattering to call it a velodrome almost, but but it's still it's good <laughs> enough. It it gets the job done, uh, and uh, and and we found out that yeah we can probably do error testing with a reliability of one percent without uh, any any other sensors than a GPS sensor and a power meter. So just just uh, based on speed, right? Yeah. So so it also gets. Um, yeah, testing different tools also kind of gets you thinking about different options that you have, and and you can often find that well, you can whittle things down to being more simpler than than they seem to be at first, uh, potentially. So I don't know mm-hmm. if that answers your question completely, but at least it gave you some thoughts, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you seem to have a lot of very similar thought process to processes to to me in that a lot of the time there is no definitive answer to uh, you know, especially like the broad questions that I'm asking you. So, um, but I, you know, I think a lot of the time when you get, when you ask a question that has a definitive answer, uh, it is a very niche question. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the time it comes down to, you know, that kind of detail stuff, um, you know, like individualizing things for the athlete, like what is this person's specific issue? Like if they're not sleeping well, um, you know, getting them, you know, to have a sleep routine or something like that, or if their nutrition is a problem, having, having them consult with a nutritionist and things like that. Cause like, that's not something that everybody needs, uh, but it's something that some people need. And it actually reminds me along those lines. Um, do you ever get clients who, because of the nature of your podcast, cause we get these occasionally, um, where they expect a lot more, they, they expect you to like, ride with like eight different sensors and go to the lab and get tests like once a month and stuff like that. Like, does that ever happen? Oh uh, yeah, it has, it has happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and I try to, especially maybe in the early days, uh, that's something that I, I learned from early day mistakes. Uh, but these days, um, I try to make it very clear kind of what, what my coaching is like and what our coaching is like in general, because, uh, all of us across scientific triathlon, are pretty similar in that sense and pretty pragmatic and practical that look there are all these cool tools but but still like the basics is the is 98% of uh, of what it is to training so so no you're not going to have eight sensors on you for most of your workouts and uh, no we're probably not going to write your workouts into these fancy AI app or whatever so that you can do it uh, based on <laughs> you do your AI training or whatever it might be. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think basically having setting the expectations right from the beginning and, and if if the athlete is not okay with that, then that's that's absolutely fine. That's their prerogative. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think I learned from mistakes early on that because that then didn't pan out very, very well if they had those expectations and that's not the way that I coach or one, another one of our coaches coach. And so, yeah, setting the expectations right from the beginning is uh, is really important in in that scenario as well as in, in all other scenarios uh, really that you could have. Yeah, um, I completely agree. So I just want to ask you just a couple more questions on the, the podcasting front. Um, so, you know, in the podcast... Um, you know, you're always looking at the scientific literature and, you know, when you do research on uh, a researcher um, or, you know, you're looking at, you know, interviews that have been done with a coach that you're going to have on or, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, do you feel like there's a, a large gap or a small gap or like where do you think the relationship is between 
most athletes and coaches and the scientific literature? Oh, that's a great question. It, it's really hard to say. I think it, I think it really varies a lot from um, from coach to coach. Really, I mean, there's a cultural component. I I think um, I, I do have a sense that um, in Europe there is maybe less of a gap. I, I think there is coaches here uh, tend to be tend tend to be quite uh, quite into the science as well as the coaching and and there's also i guess a a structure a framework for how coaches and scientists work together within within federations and the like so so that helps um to to close to bridge that gap basically uh, but even within europe i think there are definite variations from country to country and of course individually from uh, from coach to coach uh, I'm, I'm a bit less familiar with uh, with other countries like the US and Canada and Australia and, and so on. I, I do have a feeling that maybe, uh, at least in the triathlon scene, there's uh, like a little bit of a bigger gap there. But at the same time, like that's not necessarily a bad thing because, um, I mean, I, I think that coaching is probably uh, ahead of research and, and research is just is, is quite often trying to prove the methods that coaches have found out <laughs> quite, uh, years ago are, are all are working so 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 it's not always a bad thing i think i think that a good coach doesn't have to have a great understanding of and the scientific literature i think it in some cases it can help and i think that the it's more about the mindset really like it's i think a good coach has to be curious and be open-minded but they can be that that can take many different shapes it, it it doesn't have to be that they have to read research paper it, it can be that they're just really expressing that in different ways and and channeling that energy into being very um be, be, be assessing their own methods and how they are working in different ways uh if that makes sense yeah it does um well and you say something that i find fascinating because i agree with you in that um a lot of, you know, you're saying a lot of scientific research uh, is trying to catch up to coaching. Because um, I think it's very interesting that, because I know a lot of people who think, you know, unless something's been published, it's not scientifically valid and it doesn't work or something like that. And it's like, you know, two plus two was four before, you know, Euler published a paper on it. Like it, it's, you know, there are, I think, certain observations that we can make as coaches where, um, you know, the scientific literature does need to catch up. And, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm just fascinated in general by the, the relationship between the two, because I think a lot of researchers are missing that like critical, you know, component of how does this change what we're doing in practice. And a lot of coaches will look at the literature and try to put that into practice and go, this works, this doesn't work. And um, I, I think a lot of the like our general audience who is more into the research, um, you know, may not be as aware of that dynamic as we are. And maybe just what we're doing is just trying to bridge that gap. Oh yeah, no, 100%. I agree. And, and, and I think that's maybe what, what we can contribute with, especially is, well, first of all, when, well, and that's something that I try to do when I interview researchers trying to, 
uh, ask about the applied side of things, so how how to apply this, and and that's where I also uh, try to maybe express my own opinion a little bit about how how I might apply that, but also asking about limitations of the research, and and I think and asking about okay, this, here's this cool researcher that has this done this really cool study, but is this the only one in the field, or what has come before it and what has come after it? Uh, asking about what the general state of the evidence is not just this one paper that that had this interesting result so so i think there are a couple of ways that that podcasters and other media can can do a good a good or a better job about um conveying that sort of information to to the audience yeah like like i love it when an article or just something links a paper and I, and I'm seeing it more now, but it's only like a rate of like 40% at most where like they're, they'll talk about this researcher and there's paper and I'm like, all right, how do I, where's the PubMed reference? I, I want to go find this paper and read it. And I, I can't. Um, and it's, I'm sure, I'm sure it annoys you as much as me as a lot of the listeners. Um, but you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff, you know, do you have any guests who are like white whales for you? Is there anybody you really want to interview and you've just not been able to make it happen or you've been like intimidated because, you know, I've been intimidated uh, by the list of guests I've got. I'm like, oh, man, is, is Ed Coyle still alive? Can I talk to him? Oh, God, what do I ask him? I'm so excited. Well, I'm glad you asked this question, actually, because if there's somebody that uh, knows these people, then they might be able to to help me get yeah. to them. I have tr- I have tried to contact. Uh, there are a couple of coaches that I still uh, that I have wanted to interview for a long time, and I haven't been able to uh, to reach them or uh, get get them to want to come on. So, uh, in, and and they are triathlon coaches. Well, one triathlon, one cycling cycling slash triathlon coach. So Julie Dibbons. Uh, British uh, coach based in in Boulder and Tim Carrison who was with Team Sky for a long time but is also the coach of Camworth uh, who of course is doing a lot of triathlon in addition to his uh, cycling so so those are two coaches that I that I would love to into I find that they're on the academic side most people generally seem to be very happy to come on like it's uh, I honestly I can't remember off the top of my head uh, an example of somebody that hasn't wanted to come on and and even on the on the coaching side other than that like uh, honestly uh, most or all of the coaches that I've really wanted to interview I, I have been able to to get on the podcast so um, I mean a couple of uh, coaches that at, at the time felt like wow this is this is really big uh, was uh, the first one I think was when I interviewed Malcolm Brown who was the coach of the Brownlee brothers, and and that was fairly early on in the podcast days, uh, no less. So so that was that was really amazing, and uh, Dan Lorang um, with Woodhouse Glory, but uh, perhaps even more famous for coaching Alfredino and and Haug and and now also Lucy Charles Barclay, and uh, and also Adil Tveiten, the uh, Norwegian coach who who has kind of been involved from the start with uh, the Norwegian setup and and produced uh, the triathletes to the level they are today. So, so those are a few that were, I think, big big felt like big moments for me. I'm I'm trying to I, I'm I'm trying to put that look on my face like I'm impressed, but I've never heard of these people. So, <laughs> <laughs> except for uh, unless I've listened to the to their episodes on your podcast. Um, because I still do. That. I should. I should. I should. I should. I should have add Joel Filial to that list as well. That that was a really big moment for me. Mm, yeah. Um, well, so now I want to dig into some triathlon stuff. Um, actually, hold on. Before I do that, uh, here's a question that I've I have down for Andy Coggan, um, 
when I talk to him in a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll ask you now. Um, do you think that, well, cause so like when you see a researcher who publishes something and then makes the rounds in the podcasts, um, you know, to promote it, um, you know, what do you think is behind that? Because obviously like, you know, they're not making money on this kind of stuff. Um, you know, going out and talking about their research. Is it, do you think it's like a genuine desire to help the greater community by saying, this is what we found and this is our recommendations for what you should do to help X, Y, Z, or, um, do you think there's something else to it? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember when I've seen that, like, um, and, uh, well, yeah, I'm probably, thinking, I think especially like, like, uh, cause like Keith Barr, Steven Seiler, uh, you know, guys like yeah. that, like they, they make the rounds. Like if you Google Keith Barr, that's B-A-A-R on, on like iTunes, you're going to get like 20 or 30 podcasts. Yeah. Him. Is he in resistance training or what is his area? He's, uh, oh man, boy, what is his area? <laughs> what isn't his area? Um, he's, he's done a lot of research on, uh, aerobic adaptation, uh, mTOR, uh, and lately he's looking at, uh, connective tissue and muscles and ligaments and tendons. Hmm. So yeah, uh, a lot of stuff. I've, I mean, I think, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I think, I think that, um, yeah, in the case of Steven Seiler, for example, I, I, I don't think that he's necessarily been putting himself out there for all these podcasts. I think he has just been somebody that has been popular for podcasts to get on. And of course, at, uh, I also intrude him and, and want to get him on at some point. He, he's, he is uh, a great researcher, uh, I think with, with some really great ideas. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think, I think he, it's, he, he has a big name of course in, uh, in the world of sports science. So, so I think, I think it's honestly, I, I'm not sure if it's coming from him. I, I think it's more like some, some podcasts keep wanting him back on the, on the podcast. So, and that's, that that's fine, I guess. And I think for my, I can only speak from my side, but I haven't really had researchers that reach out to me that hey I published this article what I what I do have is sometimes is a lot of outreach for people that have published books and uh, like I got one just today somebody published a book in diabetes and uh, and wants to be on the podcast and to be honest like yeah that's not going to be on my on my show so I, I generally want to do most or all of my outreach comes from me not from the other side and there is the occasional exception where somebody is genuinely a great candidate and and they're not necessarily looking to promote uh, anything of their own or if they do then it's just a side effect of the great knowledge that they can impart on the audience but i, I think with academic researcher researchers it's, it's more like the maybe and i have done that certainly i've heard somebody on a on a different podcast and i'm like oh wow this guy knows what he's talking about and then i Ask them, hey, do you want to come on my podcast? <laughs> yeah. And it seems like they're doing a tour, but they, yeah, they it, were just does, discovered by Yeah. Well, because, I mean, a guy like Siler, like you listen to him, first of all, his accent's great. It, yeah. it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a phenomenal Texan accent. Um, and he's a really good speaker. And, you know, when he gives you advice on, like, you know, you've got to, you know, make sure you're recovering, like all, you know, sleeping well and eating well and all that kind of stuff, like, I'm like, man, more people need to hear this kind of stuff. <laughs> like, you know, polarized or not, like everything else is like, oh man, like, yeah, get him out on more podcasts to talk about that stuff because uh, it makes such a big difference. Um, so now I want to ask you about triathlon specific stuff because um, I used to coach running a little bit 
and we have a couple triathlon coaches with us, but um, there's a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about that um, my cycling focused audience is always kind of like, you know, we're tri curious about. Um, like, how do you manage intensity between sports and like managing the different types of intensity and like, you know, the cycling, obviously like large metabolic component, you can go through a lot of kilojoules, like running very high muscular load, like mechanical loads, swimming, different muscle group. It's in the shoulders. Like, um, does this affect, you know, how you like assign like brick workouts or do you like, is there like a general kind of periodization that kind of like balances all this stuff? How do you, how, like, how do you balance it in, in the athlete? Yeah. Uh, that, that's, I mean, I think it's one of the key questions very broad in, in triathlon. Question Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's no, it's fine. It's it's fine. I I think there are a few things that, I, for, first of all, uh, I should say that it it really does make triathlon different than say running or cycling. Like I would coach a cyclist or a runner different than a triathlete for this reason that you're training three different disciplines and and you are doing some hard workouts in all of those three disciplines so you just end up having more frequent hard workouts um and but then the intensity management part of it for me at least in in my approach becomes first of all the the low intensity training is usually really really easy like i i I don't prescribe a lot of zone two training it's zone one i don't necessarily prescribe it like that but quite often it's honestly just an rpe like this should feel like an rpe of two to three and uh, it doesn't matter whether it's a run or a bike or a, or a swim like that's that's the prescription and uh, so so the easy training becomes really easy to uh, to make sure that that's not too costly considering that you then have more frequent hard workouts as a triathlete than you would have as a cyclist or a runner but then when it comes to the hard workouts um, the the way that I manage that is to to also have keep keep them a bit more conservative than I would for a cyclist, especially for a cyclist. For a runner, I would probably still do the same just because of the load-bearing aspect. But 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 by that, I mean that, that I always want my athlete to feel like they, they could have done more and quite often quite a bit more uh, if if they had wanted to. Like they, they were not at the limit, like RPE, for session RPE, maybe a seven or maybe an eight uh, or so. And, and feeling like they had, let's say they're doing something like uh, five times f- five times eight minutes on, on the bike or something with, something with two minutes recovery. And then, then, then I wanted to feel like, yeah, I could have done one to two intervals more uh, without, without it being going to the well. Like that, that's kind of what, uh, what, what I want them to feel. So, so basically managing the stress that each individual workout has in, in that way as well. And, and then... And, and then still trying to get in, even though you have frequent hard workouts, trying to get in uh, a couple of days that are uh, low load. So, so for example, it might be that a Monday that is just an easy swim or, or a complete rest day, and a Friday that might be an, an easy swim and an easy bike. Uh, so, so it's com- a completely low intensity day because then you might have uh, an intense or moderately intense workout on all the other days of the week, potentially. Mm-hmm. So And obviously that depends. Like with a more beginner athlete, you don't have that same amount of frequent intensity, but with with more advanced athletes, yeah, you do. You can easily have two hard bikes, swims, and runs in a week, 
if you distribute things properly and, and manage those other aspects. And um, how much of those um, harder rides are targeted at a physiological intensity and how many of them are targeted at race pace? Because this is something that I would assume, you know, when you're looking at running, riding, swimming, um, you're thinking, you know, early season, you're thinking, what are the, our general adaptations that we need, general aerobic adaptations, like, you know, or, you know, structural adaptations for like running or technique for swimming. And then do you get, you get more specific towards triathlon specific pace later. Like if somebody's doing a, like a sprint try or an Olympic distance or a, you know, half iron or whatever it is, like, is, is that kind of how it works? Cause that's how I yeah. assume it would work. Exactly. No, I that's, could be that's wrong this stuff. Cause, <laughs> well, cause I think one of the things that, um, that, you know, you had mentioned on your podcast with Matt DeRosh on the Oxidative Potential podcast, which was a phenomenal conversation, by the way. I absolutely loved it. You guys did a great job. Um, you were talking about, you know, feeling nervous about how you're approaching some swim workouts now. Um, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. So, so ba basically, yeah, the discussion was that I'm approaching swim training it's not so much being nervous. I, I think I think that I <laughs> honestly maybe I'm too confident in, in being right here, but <laughs> but 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 I do think that um, in triathlon we traditionally treat swimming or we we train swimming like pool swimmers do, but that's very different from the way that you would uh, that that a traditional endurance cyclist or endurance runner would train. So you don't have your long endurance workouts necessarily or you break it up into short intervals that are often uh, swam at steady intensity which might honestly if you measure lactate it might be quite high and mm -hmm. uh and, and then in your hard workouts you the work to rest ratios are completely off compared to what you would do in in a, a bike or run workout um they're called a certain thing more so based on the total distance and uh, the work to rest ratio rather than the actual intensity but in, in a lot of cases, swim workouts are basically best effort for the set. And I think that's something that can be particularly dangerous in triathlon for the reasons that, that I discussed earlier, that I want each workout to feel like, yeah, there's quite a bit left in the tank or at least a bit left in the tank at the end of the workout. So, so, so yeah, it's not so much me being nervous. It's more taking a different approach to swimming, I guess, and, and, and programming it a bit more that, like swimming sorry, like running and, and cycling. So having traditional endurance swims that are really easy swims with long duration intervals and the rests are just there for uh, a mental rest. And for uh, the listeners that might not be at all familiar with swimming, uh, the way that you would do traditionally maybe do an endurance swim in, in swimming is not that you would go out and swim for an hour like you would for a run or for a bike. Or bike, it might be two or three hours. But but for a swim, it's still, you, you traditionally always break up the swim into intervals because otherwise athletes get so bored uh, just following the black line in the pool. But, but, but it can backfire because then if you do something like 40 times 100 with 10 second recoveries uh, after each 100 and you might swim the 100 in one minute 30, then it basically makes it quite easy for the athlete to swim at what we might call a, a tempo effort. And, and it still feels very easy because you're only doing it for a minute and 30 seconds and then you get 10 seconds rest and, and your heart rate drops down quite a bit because it's passive rest. It's relatively cold in the water and so on. You have the hydrostatic pressure as well. Uh, so so that, so that uh, 
Yeah, so, so, so for all of those reasons, it's quite easy to swim way too hard in your easy swims and in your hard swims. And that's where yeah, cha changing approach to swimming, I think, comes from. And it's, it's not something new exactly, but it's something that I'm, uh, yeah, I'm more cognizant of and, and I guess going more all in on these days, I would say, than, than I used to do a year or so ago. Yeah, well, because I think, well, when I say nervous, because I, I was detecting trepidation with breaking from tradition. Because yeah. I, I think we all feel that way when, you know, we tr we decide to try a new training method or a new testing method or whatever it is where, you know, this we know that this has not been done before to our knowledge. And based on our experience and first principles, it should work. But, you know, people have gotten pretty fast without doing this. And what makes us think yeah. that we're special? Like, you know, you and I, like, we're just average guys. Like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But but that said, I mean, I, I absolutely don't want to take credit for, for this because it has been done by, by other people as well. And only in the last couple of months, there has been at least two guests on my podcast that have talked about swim training in, in uh, at least some of these aspects have been very similar to what I'm doing. So I'm uh, recalling right now Bex Milnes and uh, Tim Reed both expressed similar things about how they approach swim training. So, so I'm not taking credit for, oh, I discovered this thing. That, that, that's not at all what, what I'm saying. But, I, but I, I do think that it's a bit of a break with tradition, as you say. And, and there are a lot fewer people doing that kind of swim training than what traditional uh, swimming looks like. Yeah, well, because I remember back in the day, I, I coached a couple runners, uh, uh, one for duathlon and one for triathlon. And um, and the triathlete, uh, one of them, was uh, actually doing a marathon. Uh, that was like her main training. And I didn't know much about traditional running training, but I knew cycling training. And I just took what I knew about cycling training and what I knew about running, like the mechanical wear and tear and all that. And I basically had her doing extensive threshold intervals. Like, you know, longer threshold and longer kind of sweet spot stuff. And, you know, she PR'd her marathon by, you know, I think, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's like, it was like five or seven minutes or something like that. Like, um, you know, it's not like, you know, 20 minutes, but it was, you know, not insubstantial. Um, and she was like, oh my God, I feel like this training really worked because, um, you know, in principle, like metabolically, yeah, this should work. And in terms of like running pacing and that kind of stuff, it should work. Um, and it did. I'm not an amazing running coach. I don't, I'm, that's not my favorite thing to coach, but, uh, it, you know, I was like, and I, I remember cause I picked up like Daniel's running formula and I was like, oh man, how do I coach running? I've got this runner. <laughs> um, and then I was like, oh, come on. I know how to do this. You know, I don't, I don't care what's been done before. I sh this should work. Um, and you know it didn't not work, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, and and I think for, first of all, like you, you did a great episode on on the extensive threshold work with where you uh, covered that Vernick Bilat uh, paper where they actually had runners doing that type of that type of work. So so that was really interesting. Just um, yeah, a week or a couple of weeks ago when we recorded this, yeah, I think so, it was like two so, two and a half something like that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So so that that was really interesting. And and secondly, I, I actually I just. Uh, went on a run uh, a couple of days ago with a runner friend of mine and uh, and we were chatting quite a lot about run training and marathon training and and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Renato Canova but he's one of the top marathon coaches uh, he's coached a lot of uh, the top Kenyan uh, runners he's Italian but, but I think he's based in, in Kenya and, and his methods are um, 
yeah, very well renowned. Like they've been written about a lot, and he's he's been very gracious with sharing a lot of his his methods. And and they are, if you compare them to a lot of traditional running methods, which is you know uh, maybe something like VO two max intervals on a Tuesday, uh, a threshold work, which is probably uh, a bit above threshold, five six millimoles lactate on a Thursday, and and then a a long run maybe with some marathon pace on a Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the Canova method is, is quite different in that it's it's a lot more about you know that extensive threshold work. I mean he, that's not what he calls it, but it, it ends up being more like that. Uh, quite a bit of you know marathon pace, a lot of marathon pace running and then some progression runs and 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 that sort of thing. Like and 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 less of the really fast stuff on on the track that that a lot of other runners are doing. And and that was a discussion we had as well that in 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 different regions of the world like in Australia for example a lot of the the running uh, the running philosophy comes from a, a generation of runners that were really successful and they did things a certain way and and that's why Australians runner now use that same methods generally to train and, and of course the same thing plays out in in many different regions and uh, but but yeah anyway I mean I think it makes total sense that what you what you did there worked uh, with with that sort of training I mean I think for for long endurance events like the marathon or for long distance triathlon like it's uh yeah similar approach with uh, just quite quite trying to do quite a lot of that that type of training whatever you want to call it extensive threshold or race specificity uh yeah it's i i mean it to me to me at least that's yeah that, that's also a big part of, of my my approach yeah um well let me ask you another thing that i hear about all the time uh in triathlon uh is reverse periodization a real thing um yeah and all the that's harder a good stuff question. first like you you know you start with like a little bit of prep work you go right into vo2 max then you do your threshold work then you do your sweet spot work and then you do your you know iron man tempo specific work or something like that yeah um i i don't think it's not a thing i don't think it's a <laughs> panacea uh like it's not going to be uh make a i i think periodization in general is maybe like yeah, it's I I look at it more about uh, looking at looking at this as a gap analysis. So where is the athlete now? Where do they need to go? And okay, how how do we how do we bridge those gaps that that we have between where they are and where they want to go? If if of course analyze assessing if that's even possible in the first place. And in some cases that's quite straightforward, and in other cases maybe not. In in some that's where maybe in some cases we want to. Bring in bring in some of those special tools. Maybe some athletes we want to send into a lab to see. Okay, where is your VO two max and where is your threshold? Do we need to work specifically on VO two max because you're limited there and so on? We can of course sometimes make estimations as well. Um, but um, anyway, I think I think it can work in certain um, in certain contexts for sure. When when we're talking about you have a longer race like an Ironman or half Ironman that you're building towards and 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 you. And you still have an athlete that you know. Okay, I want to at some point during this season, I need to get in some VO2 max training with them. Sure, it it makes sense to do it after some. Uh, it can it can make sense to do it after some uh, preparation work, and then you do it. Uh, an advantage of that is that they're quite fresh when they do the VO2 max work. So so that's that's advantageous. Like you know that they can go really hard because those are the kinds of workouts where you really need to go hard and maybe not just an RP of eight, even for a triathlete. So you might need to go harder than that. So, 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 so it can make sense. Uh, I, I don't think it's something that, uh, that you should take as a, 
you know, this is the way to periodize training for long distance <laughs> triathletes. Uh, that, that's absolutely not the case in my in my opinion, because yeah, there are, there might be some, uh, or there are definitely triathletes that they, they don't even, they don't necessarily need uh, that high intensity training because they are getting their VO2 max development from the volume they're doing. And and when you do the, the threshold intensity, you also, that's not specific VO2 max development, but the, I, I think it's, I, I, you see VO2 max improvements. It has to come from something. The volume is a big thing, but and I think when you have a little bit of intensity, well, not a little bit, but you have that slightly lower intensity of threshold, for example, that helps uh, when, when you combine the aspect of the volume and that intensity that, that it can still bring your VO2 max up to a certain level. You, you will tap out on that at some point and and you've done great jobs of explaining your approach to VO2 max training on your podcast. So And I, I think that's really... Uh, yeah, really, really great uh, what what you're doing there. But I, I think for many athletes, they don't need reverse periodization. But it it can be it can be a thing. Interesting, because um, one of my other questions was, you know, do triathletes or well now the question is how often do triathletes do those higher intensity workouts like on average? And do you ever think about anaerobic capacity with long distance triathletes? Yeah, well, this is one of those things where. Um, I can very clearly see my evolution as a triathlon coach that especially when 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 I look at triathletes focused on half and full distance triathlon every year I prescribe less and less high intensity training <laughs> <laughs> for some reason <laughs> so um I I think I think there comes a point when when you need that and and I mean probably all of my athletes will at some point during the year do uh maybe one block of VO2 max training, which can be two weeks. So, so they will yeah. do a, a few sessions there. But, but, but at the same time, I, th- I think that you can, when we're talking about amateur athletes that are not at their genetic potential or close to their genetic potential, like you, you, can, you, don't, you don't need a lot of that. And, and you probably have bigger fishes to fry and, and potentially more room to improve by focusing on, on other aspects of your fitness and your physiology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and going on the other side of things to the low intensity side, do you, do you think that there's a particular sport or do you have a sport preference for recovery activity or, um, you know, is there something that makes sense just in general in terms of triathlon training where, you know, you should do your recovery rides on your bike or you should do a recovery swim and like avoid running or something like that? Yeah, I like swimming as a recovery modality because then you can still keep the frequency up because swimming is a technical sport so you can still work you can still get the benefit of the technical training there comes a point when you're just too tired to have a good swim your legs just sink because you're so tired Mm. but and and then it's difficult but but i i do but then even then you can use a pool boy uh, or, or or a wetsuit or buoyancy shorts and so so there are ways to get around that and still work on your stroke so so i like i like to swim uh, the most as a recovery modality at the same time i do like to get in a lot of volume on the bike for, so for athletes that are more advanced volume is important to them we try to get in a lot of volume then yeah they will do a lot of uh, quality recovery I, I don't i don't really ever put in a workout in training peaks and call it a recovery this or that but but it still forms a relative recovery day, for example. So, so I, th- that might be an easy ride then, and and it can still for an advanced athlete be a two-hour easy ride. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it's not it's not recovery per se. But but I think that you can 
yeah, you can you can get in some uh, some easy aerobic work on on the bike as well. So definitely, the the swim would be the first one, and the bike would be the second one. Okay, cool. Now, whenever people ask me this question on my Instagram AMAs, I will just refer them to this podcast. <laughs> so, oh man, that's great. Um, my, uh, I guess my last question specifically about triathlon is on pacing. Because, um, uh, you know, I get this question a lot for time trials, like what power can I hold? And my answer is usually, have we done an effort of this duration before and that's going to be our at this at this elevation also and you know in the same you know heat and humidity and all that have we done something in the similar conditions that's going to be our starting point you know and also what's the difference in your condition between now and then were you like peak shape right then and you're not right now or vice versa um and because whenever people ask me about this kind of stuff you know the the real underlying principle here is the best predictor of performance is performance itself and I think one thing that is not as well known to a lot of uh, just, you know, casual cyclists or e- even triathletes maybe um, is that what people can do under threshold varies quite a bit. Uh, like I've, I've got a lot of, um, you know, world tour data now and i'm looking at a lot of people with like great like 20 30 minute power and they just like fall off a cliff when it comes out to like three four hours and there are others who are the opposite where they're 20 30 minutes not that high but they just do not fatigue and they can just bludgeon you with watts for like three four five hours if they want to um and so when it comes to triathlon pacing uh how do you approach this because i'm sure that there are rules of thumb um, oh, you did talk. You talked about this on Matt's podcast. Sorry, uh, I, I did like, actually. I swear yeah, I, did. I just I, heard this, and I I did yeah. the same Google, and I went, "Oh yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong, or that's probably wrong." Yeah. Uh, it might be a middle of the road thing. So tell me about your approach to that kind of pacing, like sub threshold. Yeah, it's well, it's very similar to what to what you just said there. Like I, I agree with all of that. Uh, looking at what you've done before, and uh, and 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 the conditions as well, and and in addition to that. Uh, before going into any sort of important race for the athlete, we do race specific workouts and and see and that that's obviously not doing the entire race. But when you do that in a relatively fatigued state in a training block, when if you do let's say five times twenty minutes at your uh, half Ironman effort and uh, with five minute recoveries on the bike, then that's going to be in my experience quite reflective of what you can uh what you can probably do for the entire race if you're if you're somebody who does the the bike fairly quickly let's say in uh you know two to two and a half hours uh, or the 90 kilometers in the half ironman so it's it's close enough in in the total duration that that it can it, it can translate when you're tapered and, and in your peak uh peak shape uh of course then you still have to account for conditions if you're going from a temperate climate to to somewhere very hot or that those those or altitude as well so so those mm-hmm. those things you do need to to account for but but yeah it's it's looking at past data com- comparing conditions and and looking at recent simulation workouts the, the, those are the the main methods i i go by and yeah I, I would strongly urge people to to not look at those articles because yeah as as you just said that uh, it's it's just so individual and uh, and what what i think is that when you look at the triathlon recommendations like 
85% of FTP for, for half Ironman, for example. That, that's true for uh, very, very well-trained athletes that, um, yeah, extremely well-trained athletes, extremely endurance-trained, and that are also doing the half Ironman in a fairly short time. So obviously it's a very big difference if you're doing the bike leg in two hours versus three hours, then that's going to have an impact. Uh, do you find that somebody's TTE at threshold has a relationship with this or is that, you know, sometimes yes, sometimes no? I, as, I assume it does, but to be honest, it's not something that I looked too deeply into. Uh, like I, I don't, uh, do as good a job as you do, I'm sure, of keeping the power duration model up to date. And Or uh, I, I really uh, think that your FTP protocol with the TTE as well, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, but but it's not something I've implemented in my uh, in my testing uh, at, at this point. So, so I just can't say for sure, but I, I would assume so. Well, one of the things that I've learned to do over the years is I assign some workouts that I know are going to positively affect the power duration curve in such a way that it will have an impact on the metrics. Um, like for instance, if, uh, if somebody's doing a sweet spot workout, uh, some, some of my pro athletes who have forever to train, like they'll do their efforts over the course of like a seven hour ride and that's fine. But, uh, a lot of the time I'll be like, okay, you need to do five minute rests here because it impacts the power duration curve in the, in the like 90 minute to two hour range a lot. And that's the kind of thing that affects the model. And so in those little bits of training where I'm, I give a, you know, one workout like this, that's when I'm like, okay, I know this is going to show an effect in the model. And that's the kind of stuff where we'll see TTE go out and stuff like that. And, and so for me, I think also cause an advantage in cycling in general is that, you know, there's, there's almost never a bad time to have somebody go out and do a couple hard efforts, you know, in the one to, you know, eight minute range or something like that. And so yeah. I imagine as your athletes are getting close to their race, the last thing you want them to do is go out and blast a full five minute effort. Yeah, exactly. And even if you lose that point on the curve, you're like, well, we're just gonna have to do without it for now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and don't forget you have the swim and the bike and the run and they all impact each other. So uh, so to me, uh, again, this is something, an evolution in my coaching over the last few years that yeah, l less and less uh, looking at the metrics and, and more and more looking at what is the athlete actually doing in the workout. So for example, I might give a workout that is three to five times 20 minutes sweet spot intervals. And um, if the athlete does five times 20 minutes, if they choose to do that, they will tell me, it will tell me a lot of things. It will tell me about their psychology. It will tell me about their fatigue. But it will also tell me about their TTE, in my opinion, yeah. uh, to some extent, especially when, when I can compare that to, okay, you, I gave you the same prescription last week and you chose to do four. This week you did five. So, so those sorts of things also help to get to the same points. And, and I probably, I, I can't quantify things as exactly in, with these methods, but I can uh, see that the trend is right and uh, and it can definitely help us see okay so what is realistic for you to do in the, to hold in the race uh, but but then the same method i can I, I can use those same methods and they work across the board in swimming biking and running whereas otherwise swimming and running are really a lot more difficult because we just don't have the accuracy of the power meter that we have on the bike so um, yeah. so yeah that's that's a main reason for doing that Man, i can't believe how similar we are because uh, you know, I, cause I've, I've also come upon the exact same way to track progress. And it's like, 
like if I didn't have WKO five, I could still do it. You know, it's, yeah. it's not like, like, you know, quality training hinges on it. It's easier to analyze trends and data like that. It's a lot easier. It's easier to analyze like, you know, how somebody pedals and somebody preferred cadence and, you know, you know, force velocity curve and sprinting and stuff like that. It's so much easier that way, but it's not indispensable. It's indispensable as a time saver for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think, I think my last try question specifically is, um, has the, you know, cause you know, I'm, I'm not an arrow expert. Um, sounds like you're not an arrow expert either, but you do have friends who are. And so do I. Yeah. Um, yeah. but do you think that the, the arrow arms race has hit triathlon already, or is it like really in, you know, cycling time trials for now and it's getting into triathlon? I think it's hit triathlon for sure. And, um, yeah, especially I think on the, the men's professional side, uh, it is extremely well developed. It's getting to the women's side as well. Uh, it's a bit more, uh, I would say varied, uh, on the women's professional side, but also on the age group side now, like you do have a lot of age groupers that are, uh, really focusing on aerodynamics a lot more than, than they used to. And, and there's, there's certainly a lot more awareness, uh, on the amateur side. And, and I think that, we're maybe on the cusp of more and more people actually taking action on it and and really working on actively improving their aerodynamics, and and I think that will happen with uh, the tools that we have that are already useful uh, in certain contexts. Uh, you have to know their limitations and uh, and so on, but they they are useful and and as they get better and better, which I think they will, then then I think it will really hit triathlon big time um, i'm not sure i mean i know i'm quite familiar with the the british time trialing scene and, and there you definitely have the amateurs as well that are extremely uh, knowledgeable about and good uh, good aerodynamically on the bike and I, I think in triathlon you have you maybe don't have the same depth of amateurs that are extremely extremely good at uh, aerodynamics but you have the top the the top uh, amateurs they are definitely many of them anyway will have that same attribute and and on the pro men's side i really think it's it's top notch there uh, for for the most part do you think it's it's more prevalent or actually or let me put it this way is do you think it's less prevalent in draft legal triathlon Oh, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I think very few people in draft legal triathlon pay any attention to it, and I mean it makes sense because um, they, for many athletes anyway, they know that they're not strong bikers, so their their plan is to hinges on being able to ride with the pack. Mm-hmm. So, but but I do know that this is again the Norwegians uh, are a great example of that. Uh, their game plan. Uh, being weaker swimmers is that they have to bridge up from that second swim group for example to the front pack and then start the run with the front pack and 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 to be able to do that um given that in the front pack you have the same issue that you have in all cycling and triathlon races potentially being aided by media uh vehicles and so on mm-hmm. they have to be really damn fast uh on the bike even in draft legal races or uh so so they did put in a lot of focus, I know, uh, from for Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympics, for example, into even things like aerodynamics uh, in the draft legal race. And and there are probably a handful of other uh, draft legal athletes that, that are doing those things. But but it's, 
I mean, it's understandably a lot less of a focus, but uh, but I think I think some athletes, depending on their strengths and weaknesses, could probably could stand to to actually focus on it, like the Norwegians showed, uh, could make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that drafting has a large component on, especially in like shorter, you know, quote unquote shorter races on the track and running. Um, is that something that also happens in triathlon? Um, like, I, actually, I, I don't know if you're like not allowed to like run right behind somebody in triathlon because, you know, no, at you, some are. Speeds, you are. Yeah, because yeah, at some speeds, I would assume there is a draft benefit. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the Olympic distance and sprint distance racing, uh, yeah, at the top level, you have speeds above twenty kilometers an hour to to win those races. Mm-hmm. So, so there you do have uh, a drafting benefit. I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but it's uh, it's significant. So, so definitely tactics play a part, and um, that's a good uh, a good comment and a good observation because I do think that maybe a lot of athletes uh, would maybe. Uh, benefit from thinking a bit more about that. Uh, you see it this year in, on the draft legal scene in the sprint and Olympic distance races that you have two standout athletes in Alex Yee from Great Britain and Hayden Wild from New Zealand that are that are uh, consistently battling it out out with each other. And uh, Alex Yee, coming from a track running background, uh, has so far mostly gotten the better out of Hayden Wild, and and he seems to be running more of the time behind Hayden and kind of hiding and, and waiting for his time and and it has helped him so far when they reach the blue carpet and sprint for the line he has beaten him and it, it, it's obviously one aspect of it is just he has a great sprint on him but but also could Hayden be more tactical and run behind Alex and and then maybe have more energy left for the sprint and, and or maybe for a longer kick like a 400 or 800 meter kick towards the line so 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 I think at the top level those are the kinds of things that you need to focus on but in long distance triathlon when the the speeds are more in the uh, i don't know 18 17 kilometer an hour even on the pro men's side at, at the half distance then 18 kilometers an hour i, I guess it's uh, trying to do the, the conversion from pace to speed and and i'm not sure i get it exactly right but it's it's certainly a fair bit below 20 then uh I I think that it it stops really having that much of an of an impact unless maybe if you're running into a strong headwind, so so yeah in that sense uh, in in that context I don't think it makes too big a difference anymore. But at at the top level in the shorter draft legal races, yeah, it, it can it can have an impact. Uh, do do you have more like slower age group athletes who have this as like a main focus on their training, um, where you're like. Hold on, buddy. Let's let's get you finishing the race first. Like, is do you have some people who like with you know, who who think about this kind of stuff a lot? Because in cycling, you know, I think a lot of people focus on the physiology, but there's also a very large camp of people who are always thinking about tactics and hiding and positioning and stuff like that. So, um, where where is triathlon with all that kind of stuff generally? Oh, that's a great question. I I I, re- I think it varies a lot from individual to to individual. There, I I have, yeah, I've, I mean, I, I think I think most people that I coach anywhere are. Uh, I, I, and maybe it's just because we work together for quite a long time, and and we've already kind of uh, talked through where they are currently, and and we we have a, an alignment around that, and and there is a self awareness in them. So so I think. Yeah, I don't have that where people talk about 
race tactics when they should be focusing about finishing the race, really. Um, yeah, I, th I think that there, there is definitely a point where the faster age groupers, for example, and, and, and the professional athletes where maybe, uh, yeah, yeah, thinking about tactics isn't something that has really occurred to them, especially in long-distance racing, because it's still such a long race that it's, it's in a way, it's an individual time trial, uh, but, it's, but it's also not. Uh, you still have, you, you can still benefit from not racing it like a, an evenly paced time trial. So, so, so I, I guess there is a little bit of, I, I would say that there, there, is, there is a certain uh, demographic of athletes that, that maybe, that, that are not thinking about tactics when, when they maybe should be. But then again, at the very top of the sport, I, I do think that everybody is, is very tactically aware and, uh, and, and it does play a big part as well in, in the racing and, and how it plays out the race dynamics and so on. That's, that's fascinating to me. Um, and I think my very last question on all of this is going to be, uh, were, was there a big uproar in the triathlon community about drafting in the two-hour marathon? Not that I'm aware of. No, no. I think I think they all actually it was a. But but are you aware of the sub seven sub eight project that happened just this June? No. So that was the the triathlon equivalent of uh, of the two hour marathon where uh, Christian Blumenfeld and uh, and uh, Joe Skipper on the men's side and Kat Matthews and Nicholas Pirig on the women's side uh, each put together a team. So there were four teams and uh, the men were trying to do an Ironman in under seven hours and the women were trying to do it in under eight hours. And they each got to have 10 people on their teams and they could distribute them how they wanted in uh, swimming, cycling and, and running as pacers. And on the bike, they were allowed to, uh, to draft, which, of course, normally you're not allowed in an Ironman. Yeah. And so, so it became like a team time trial on the bike. And the bike is obviously where most of the time gains were made. And, uh, and I think there was a bit of a, like, there, there was definitely, uh, you know, uh, some people that, that thought that, well, this is uh, not in the spirit of triathlon. So, so that there was an uproar there in, the, in that sense. Uh, and uh, I would disagree with that. I think it was, it was a fun event. It, it was a show. It's, it's not, of course, not a world record, just like the two-hour marathon wasn't a world record. And, and to be honest, the two-hour world, two, the two, sub-two-hour marathon was obviously closer to the real thing than the sub-seven, sub-eight, because in, in a race, in a running race, you are allowed to draft people, which you are not in a triathlon race. So they did bend the rules a lot more in, in the triathlon equivalent of the running. Uh, but uh, yeah, I didn't see anything for the, the sub two hour marathon in the triathlon community. No. Interesting. Um, yeah, because it's it sounds like um, you know it sounds it sounds like a bit like the UCI hour record. Um, you know, because the rules have changed so much, like, you know, a lot of people, like I was so excited when Fabian Cancellara wanted to do the hour Merck's style with like box section rims on drop bars. Uh, cause he wanted to compare himself to, you know, the greatest. Um, and you know, it's gotten, you know, it's, it's obviously to you know, re re instill interest in the hour. They changed it so that aerodynamics can play a big part, you know, like, I cannot imagine like Dan Bigham's hour, he did more than like 380 watts or something like that. Um, but, you know, aerodynamically, he has, he is like on top of the world. And I think it's, you know, I, I think the question is really is like, I th obviously this is something that everybody has to answer for themselves is, you know, is that in the spirit of the hour? 
Like, is, yeah. that, is that fair play? That's a good question. I, I don't have an answer, uh, and and I'm um, yeah not not as familiar as uh, either with when different uh, rules changes have taken place. Place, so I'm I'm only um, yeah. I, my 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 knowledge of the hour is 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 more recent than that. I guess like what what is allowed now and and how did them begin go about it. So so for me, but but I understand people that have seen. Uh, the way that it was done before, and yeah, obvious, it's obvious that you want to compare. Okay, so what could the current heroes do compared to the heroes of old? And and when you're robbed of the chance to see that, then yeah, I can understand that. That's uh, yeah, that's frustrating, and and you want things to stay the same in in that sense. Yeah, well, the UCI is interesting because they're they're trying to regulate a certain amount of tradition in cycling. I think because when we were watching like you know, Obri, like with the Superman position and that super tuck and all that, um, you know, like he's on that bike that's he made out of a washing machine. Um, you know, he's in this tiny little weird position. He's got these tiny little bars and he's tucked down like a ski jumper. Uh, and he's going so fast. Um, you know, like it was so radical compared to what had happened before. And, you know, like, cause the most radical thing that had happened before that was Greg Lamont put, triathlete bars to win the the tour time trial on the last stage by eight seconds um and you know i think it's i i'm all i just i always wonder about that because i don't have a good answer either um because cycling is a sport of tradition like we still do the same like you know 15 big races in europe that we've always done and like the biggest new one is in Italy, go figure. Like, I would love to see a really cool race in like Africa or South America where everybody goes and it's like a huge deal. Um, but yeah, you know that is that tradition thing. Yeah, there is it, it, what triathlon is doing uh, because things are changing a lot in triathlon right now with the introduction of the professional triathletes organization, which uh, is backed by some uh, really. Uh, rich investors, so so they have a lot of a lot of money that they are using to try to grow the the sport commercially through growing the professional side of it. Uh, to make a long story short, and and they are introducing the so-called PTO tour, uh, which this year had the first two uh, opens, as they call them. So the U.S. Open, well, that's to happen in September, and the Canadian Open already happened in July, I believe. So and next year they're going to do the European Open and the Asian Open. And I think in particular the in particular the Asian one will be interesting because so far triathlon has been so centric to Europe and North America, and uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see what sort of engagement that they can drum up uh, with the Asian one. There, to be fair, there there are race there are race. It's not like there are not races in Asia. There there have been races there for a long time. Japan is actually there's uh, been a lot of good, especially short course Japanese athletes uh, over many many years, and they have a history of putting on races as well uh, at the highest level. Yokohama is uh, consistently on the World Triathlon Championship Series calendar, but but it's uh, yeah on the long long course side of things. Uh, yeah, it will be interesting to see where the the new Asian Open will will take things and and. Yeah, I think I, I can understand that in cycling as well, it would be interesting to see what a new interesting race in an interesting place would do for the sport. Yeah. Um, and one more question on that, because um, in uh, in cycling, I think a lot more people would rather win the tour than they would rather, they would rather win the tour than an Olympic gold in the Olympic road race. Mm. Um, 
And I think that speaks to like the amount of tradition that's there. Uh, so where is the Kona Ironman versus the Olympics for triathlon? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, I think it's uh, more skewed in triathlon towards the Olympics than Kona, uh, or compared to cycling anyway. That the Olympics, I, I would see the Olympics as the most prestigious thing, partially because it happens only every four years, and and also, yeah, it's just crazy the the times that they're running i mean uh, kona is great uh, long distance traveling is great but it's more of a war of attrition but compare that with when you see somebody running a 29 minute 10k after they've already swim and biked as hard as they possibly can that that's just that's just crazy to me like it's it's incomprehensible um so 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 and i think a lot of athletes with especially the athletes that have grown up doing triathlon as kids they would they would certainly say the Olympics uh, athletes that have straddled both short and long distance triathlon would probably say the Olympics. But there is of course a lot of athletes that come straight into long distance triathlon and and then yeah they would say Kona. A lot of amateurs would say Kona because they are adult onset triathletes. They started doing Ironmans and 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 they are more interested in in Kona and not all in the Olympics. So so it's not as if it's you know a clear oh the Olympics is bigger, but. But I, yeah, I think it's it's a little bit maybe skewed towards that, and 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 I think that maybe, at least for me, like what kind of determines that question is, the athletes that have the opportunity to win both, like Christian Blumenfeld, um, won the twenty twenty one Ironman World Championships, even though it was in Saint George in twenty twenty two because the Kona version was postponed and it was mm-hmm. moved, and uh, but now he has the chance to win Kona after winning the Olympics, but and I'm, he he has probably been asked this but uh and but I can't remember and but I'm pretty sure that he would say that still the Olympics is the the one if he could have only won one of those the Ironman World Championships or the Olympics I'm pretty sure he would say the Olympics yeah because I think um you know when it comes to that kind of stuff I always wonder what's the um you know because because uh, provenance also has a big part of it too like you know, when you, if you win an Olympic medal, you're comparing yourself to everybody else who's won an Olympic medal, like, you know, throughout, you know, when was the first Olympics in the modern era? Like late 1800s, early 1900s, like 1906, maybe? Yeah, 1904 or 1896, I think, one of them. Um, But, you know, too bad we don't have like records going back to the Greek times. Uh, Yeah. um, (laughs) They didn't have bikes back then. Uh, Who cares? Um, So, um, but I always wonder, because I think the tour is probably harder than the Olympics to in some ways, especially because it's, it's longer. Um, there, you know, there are larger team aspects, you know, your team better. Um, and I think also, I, I think who was it? Miguel and once said that anybody can win the world championships cause you just have to have one day, but winning the tour or any grand tour is harder because you have to have 21 good days. Hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, that's a very, very fair point, and and he's he's probably right, and and that's probably right. That winning the tour is harder. Um, yeah, if you have one bad day, then uh, that's it for you. And we kind of saw it in this year's tour because Pogacar really only had one bad, bad day, but that cost him in the end. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, in, I mean, in in the triathlon comparison between Kona and the Olympics, it's different because they are both one day events. So so I think that you don't really have that same. Aspect. I think. I think the Olympics is the one that is. There's no absolutely no margin for error. Like if you ask Jan Frodeno, who has won uh, the Olympics in 2008, and he won Kona uh, three times in 
2015 and 16 and 19, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, he he would say, uh, I'm pretty sure that only 2019 was, that's when he had his perfect race in, in Kona, but 2015 and 2016, there are things that he could have done better. But in the Olympics, there's really, there's no margin for error. Like you, you have to have a perfect race uh, almost certainly to, to win because it's, you're almost, almost definitely going to be, uh, yeah, to be together with other people until very close to the finish. So um, yeah, it's, so the, shorter it's, the margins are so small. Makes it more exciting in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, I'm, so I, my coaching bias is that I, I love coaching the long distance. I love training for and racing long distance but but as a spectator i love the short distance that's that's what i'm the most drawn to and so yeah i think i think it makes it i think the bike is honestly they they should do something about the bike because that's often very very boring uh because the packs just stay the same that they are after the swim and it's it's almost impossible for a break to happen uh the way the courses are set up they should have some more challenging courses maybe less dead turns and so on uh but yeah, the, the bike can be boring, but yeah, the swim and the run are are super exciting. And so, yeah, in, in, for, for spectators, I think the short distance is, is more exciting. That's something that the organizations like the PTO are trying to do something about making long distance more exciting for spectators and bringing more commercial value to it. And clearly cycling is a great example of that because when you have people that are engaged for 21 days of racing or many hours in the tour, then... It's not that the duration is necessarily the problem, but that it's there's got to be something they can do to make it more exciting. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> somebody who makes like cycling more Me exciting <laughs> is uh, gonna make a lot of money. Um, what is your favorite meme? And uh, doesn't have to be training or cycling related. Just what's your favorite meme? Um, yeah, I'm I'm really bad at this, <laughs> but I had one one that I saw uh, that was that was quite funny. It was um, some somebody comes in, a cyclist coming in from a ride, looking at his bike computer or GPS watch, or and telling his friend that uh, I I rode 120 kilometers at 32 kilometers an hour at a power of 195.7 watts and a heart rate of 145. And his friend asks, did you have fun? And uh, the guy looks at his watch and says, it, it doesn't say. So that's, that's one that I like. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, but I, I, can, I can give you a bonus one, which is not a meme at all, but it's a, it's a video, a six-minute YouTube video. If, if you search on YouTube for uh, Ultra Runner versus Iron Man, that's, that's a really fun one. I, I think you will enjoy that one. Okay, cool. Um, do you have time for a couple listener questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yep. Um, I have not seen these yet. I guarantee at least the first one is about peeing on the bike. Uh, so why don't we just get that okay. out of the way? Do triathletes yeah. pee on the bike and does anybody actually care? Yes and no. Okay. Well, um, maybe some people care actually, but people, but yeah, triathletes do. They, they don't care. Yeah. Oh, just like clockwork. First question, <laughs> pee pee on the bike. Yes or no? Uh, <laughs> two, three, four pee questions. All right. Everybody who's Checking out my Instagram needs to stop asking about pee. Um, uh, somebody says, um, tell us more about your training camp in Mallorca. Yeah, uh, so it's uh, basically, we're, it's a pretty big training camp. We're going to have uh, uh, hopefully all of our coaches there. Uh, so five of us, but at least we're going to have many coaches and, uh, and uh, 
40 to 50 athletes, hopefully. Last year we were uh, mid-30s and, uh, and there's room for a few more this year. And uh, it's for all levels. We can we have the resources to split things into groups of different, different levels. We're going to uh, be doing, of course, a lot of the famous climbs from Mallorca, like Sakalobda, and, 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 and exploring the different, the great cycling opportunities that exist there. It's a really beautiful island, and, and the cycling there is brilliant. Roads are good. Uh, drivers are respectful. Uh, and there's also a, a pool on the right at the hotel facilities, so we're swimming in an outdoor pool at the hotel and, and doing some swim video analysis, technical feedback, but also just good good old-fashioned hard work to to get everybody ready for the season uh and uh, yeah there's more information on the website scientifictriathlon.com but in in a nutshell that's that's what we're doing there in the pool is it like a typical hotel pool like there's a shallow end and there's a diving pool no no, a no. Slide? no it's it's a tra- it's a training it's a training pool oh, okay <laughs> there's there are also recreational pools but uh but most people don't use them in March. It depends on the weather, I guess. Like we hopefully will have. Uh, to be honest, last year we had pretty bad weather uh, for unseasonally bad weather. But uh, it's the end of March, so so generally speaking, the weather should be really nice in Mallorca that time of year. Um, why don't triathletes wear socks? Well, it's uh, faster to not put them on uh, in transition, and uh, so most tri- for up to Olympic distance uh, triathlon which is uh, 59 meters swimming, 40 kilometers biking, and 10 kilometers running. Most triathletes, uh, especially the faster ones, don't wear socks for any any of it, so also running barefoot. When it comes to the half distance, where the running goes up to 21 kilometers, then a lot of athletes choose to put on socks, but some choose not to do. I've done both, and uh, sometimes successfully uh, not put on socks. Sometimes you pay for it with a blister that takes some time to to go away and you lose some training but but if uh, in a race where 15 seconds might mean a lot to you then uh, it can still be worth it um, but yeah it's it's basically saving time in, in transitions interesting i had never noticed that or even thought about it but that makes a lot of sense i would definitely go socks because i've uh i, I just can't imagine the smell of your shoes if you don't wear socks and you go for a long run yeah, uh, no, it's it's pretty bad, but you don't really notice it in a race when you're pumped full of adrenaline. So so it's all right. I bet. Um, what's your favorite restaurant in Spain? In Spain, well, um, I live in Portugal. So should I answer Portugal? I can answer I can answer Spain as well because I've been there a fair amount. Uh, how about how about Portugal and Mallorca? Portugal and Mallorca. Um, well, Mallorca is definitely the buffet at the hotel we're staying during the camp. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good buffet, and uh, and and in Portugal, uh, yeah, we have uh, a great local. No, uh, we have a great local restaurant uh, called Adega das Gravatas, which is uh, in a place in Lisbon where you will never have any tourists. It's only locals, and, and it's traditional Portuguese cuisine. It's not fancy. It's big portions. But it's very good quality. And uh, yeah, I like that. That sounds great. Uh, I'm down. I'm especially down yeah. for the buffet. Uh, anything like I, I am, I can be swayed by volume. Um, uh, what's the difference in volume, uh, especially for endurance training in general, between Ironman distance and sprint distance? At the elite level, um, the difference is not that big. Like the world's best sprint distance triathletes train 25 
30 hours per week. Depends a little bit. 20 to 30. Some are more. The lower volume athletes are maybe in the 20 to 24 hour range and the higher volume in the 26 to 30 hour range per week uh, in total. And and for Ironman, uh, honestly, it's the same. It's it's very much the same. Or maybe you would have a slightly higher skew in the Ironman athletes, like uh, two to four hours more on average in an Ironman athlete than a sprint distance athlete. If you take the let's say the top fifty in the world, but but not not too big a difference, uh, because yeah, it it, uh, it turns out that you still need that volume to maximize your endurance adaptations. Also for a race that takes you, let's say, fifty minutes at the at the top end. But for an age grouper, if you're looking to just uh, complete, then for a sprint distance race, you, you can train. Uh, you can easily do a sprint distance race generally with uh, three to five hours per week, four to five hours maybe, uh, if you're just starting out. And uh, and for an Ironman, if you want to, then I would definitely recommend building up to, you want to have a couple of kind of 14-hour weeks in there probably, but but that doesn't have to be the bulk of your program. The bulk of your, your you can definitely average around, nine to ten hours per week if it's your first Ironman and you have maybe done some shorter races before and uh, so for the three months leading into the race if you average nine ten hours per week and you have a, a few weeks of 14 hours per week then that's that I would say is uh, with with the right training structure is, is very much doable for completing your first Ironman I'm I'm uh you know I'm kind of fascinated by that because I would have given the same answer not that I know a ton about triathlon but um uh, I think that um, actually here, let me ask you, let me approach it this way. Um, how prevalent is it that people ask, well, my race is only this long. Why do I have to do more training than that? Oh uh, yeah, it's, it's quite prevalent. I, I don't have any stats on it, but yeah, it, it does happen. <laughs> um, what are your tips on how to start running safely for cyclists? Yeah, you have to really give it time. I, I think, especially as a cyclist, a well-trained cyclist, uh, you have to be aware of the fact that your your cardiovascular and metabolic fitness is going to be way, way, way ahead of your uh, your tissue uh, resilience, your bones and tendons and ligaments, and and those things. And also, even if you're starting from not being, you know, a world beater on the bike, uh, those cardiovascular and metabolic adaptations come. Uh, a lot quicker, especially the cardiovascular ones, I would say, than, than the tissue adaptations. That's something that takes a, a much longer amount of time. So so progress much slower than you think you should be progressing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the best answer that I can give you. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's, it, it, it depends on if you've done any running before or any weight-bearing sport, like some, having some, done some resistance training can, can help because then you have maybe some higher bone mineral density and and, and tissue strength than, than if you're a complete newbie to any sort of load bearing. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't want to generalize around volumes, but yeah, there's nothing wrong with starting with doing three runs a week of ten to fifteen minutes, doing that for a couple of weeks, and maybe add five minutes to to each of those runs for a couple of weeks, and then take a week where you maybe don't run at all or just do a couple of 10 minute runs and and like really it 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 has it's it's always better to be too careful than to progress too quickly because that can potentially derail you not just from running but also from cycling if you get a running injury i i think it's very telling that in triathletes 
they tend to find it when they do studies on, on the subject that 80% of triathlon injuries uh, come from running. That might be 80% of overuse injuries. I'm not sure if traumatic injuries are included in that, but but that's still the lion's share. And it's not like as if you're as if there are no overuse injuries on the bike or the swim, both of them, you, you see cyclists have overuse injuries and swimmers have overuse injuries, but, but it's just that running is so much, so much more riskful in terms of overuse injuries. Yeah. Um, I mean, cause, and especially when somebody like, you know, goes faster than you tell them to, um, I was, mm. uh, I was training somebody in running cause he, you know, was just going to do like a 5k or something. Um, and when I, when I was trying to bring the pace up just a little bit with him, like, you know, jog and then, you know, a minute every five minutes, go a little faster uh, at whatever pace, um, he was like sprinting. And yeah. I was like, don't do this. You are going to get shin splints. And was like, I was like, all right, well, we got to do some race pace kind of stuff. Don't sprint. Shin splints. Yeah. So yeah. Happens a yeah lot. I, th- I, th- I think another thing is that when – even things like shoe selection for your running gait. I mean, that's not that's not to say that, uh, th- th- that that's the thing that I get asked a lot, actually, especially by by my athletes sometimes. Like, should I, I have this opportunity to go and do a running gait analysis and get some correction tips? And generally speaking, my advice is that, no, you shouldn't do that. Your body will uh, already be well adapted to your running style and, and it will have found the most efficient way for you to run. There are definitely uh, certain cases where you might want to do some technical changes but for most people that at least have been running then technique takes care of itself but at the same time like if you're completely new to running you're not really you don't really know what you're doing you might uh, you might find that you have to experiment with finding the right shoes and so on that that will be have the right amount of cushioning and support for you and for your running style and and while you do those sorts of find those sorts of lessons basically and learnings then yeah, it's better to be conservative to to not risk anything any, anything happening in the meantime. Yeah, and then when you're more experienced, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, last question. Um, you're amazingly impartial on the podcast. What training concept do you most disagree with? What training concept do I most disagree with? Um, oh, uh, yeah, I need some time to think about this. <laughs> I'll start. I mean, I mean, fasted training. I, yeah, hey, fasted training. Fasted yeah, training. that's a that's a fast. Yeah, fasted training is probably that's probably the one I would say because honestly, that's yeah. I I haven't I, and I have experimented with that as a coach, and I've never seen that translate into performance. And and yeah, all the other things that I can think of, <laughs> I can think of examples when when even though I don't agree with it, it, it does work. But fasted training, I think everything <laughs> points towards not doing it. So so I I, I think that that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right, Is, uh, do you have any more thoughts uh, to share or anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't quite get to? Um. No, I think I think we covered a lot here. Um, I just want to thank you for all the work you put into your podcast because it's uh, uh, yeah I'm a very loyal listener of of it and uh, and I think it's uh, it's un- it's a unique podcast that you have and uh, and I appreciate that. Thank you. I I, I holy fuck I'm blushing. Um, <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, and you know you like your podcast continues to be my favorite training podcast. Uh, you know, partly because, you know, you do have such good impartial questions. And I think, you know, uh, you know, you and I have such a, a, 
a similar mindset when it comes to training and coaching and um and you know when you the first time you reached out to me to be on your podcast my first thought was i made it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah that's amazing (laughs) oh man so thank you so much uh thanks for coming on Uh, i hope people appreciate this and i will uh, leave all the links in our show notes about where they can find you but i'm sure most of uh, my listeners already listen to your podcast so um thanks again for coming on yeah great thank you for having me All right. Of course, thanks again to Michael Erickson for coming on the show. I always have such a great time talking to him. uh, And I think that was uh, probably one of the best conversations uh, I've had. And, uh, you know, it's because he's such a thoughtful guy and he's so well researched and he's so well thought out. And uh, his perspective is great on everything. So, uh, Michael, thanks again for coming on to the show. And I cannot wait to have you back. And, of course, for everybody listening to the show, who knows what's coming up, um, thank you for listening again. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast and uh, share it, of course, because we are ad-free. Sharing the podcast goes a long way. And, again, if you want to reach out for coaching or consultation inquiries, empiricalcycling at gmail.com. And, of course, we asked the questions up on the Instagram So follow along at Empirical Cycling if you want to check that out. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.